visit with us. And we have a, a, I've called Andy a guest pastor because he was once a part of our church for a small amount of time. He is from the Greenville area. We're going to have just a moment Andy and Sally come and speak with us, speak to us, uh, share God's word with us. Um, the great thing about Andy, it's he's got all kinds of accolades. He's not only got four degrees, a couple PhDs. He was the research manager for a guy named D.A. Carson. Um, he's written many, many different books. He is currently the professor of, I think, a systematic theology in New Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary. He's also one of the elders at Bethlehem Baptist Church. But what I love about Andy is... Although he is a man of many letters and studying, and he's written so many books, he's actually written helpful books on the conscience and other topics as well that I'd, I'd encourage you to, to look up and to get. But what's really great about Andy is that he applies God's Word to his life. Um, and, and, and I don't say this in a, in a way to denigrate any of his degrees. Anyone can be smart, but it takes a, a man of God to apply God's Word to your life and be truly wise. Um, Andy is a wise man of God. He's applied God's word to his life, and he, it, it's, it's made him a humble man. It's made him an entreatable, godly man. It's made him a man who loves his family well and leads his family well. He's a man of integrity, and he's a man of, of joyful faith in God. And so I'm excited to invite Andy to come up and speak and, and share God's word from Matthew 5 today. Um, he is a good brother, and not only can you trust what he says, but, but you will learn much. So, Andy, thanks so much for coming. Well, good morning. It's so good to be with you all again. I think the last time was a few years ago, and before that was, I think, 2013. So, we love your congregation, and it's a joy to, to be with you all again. Do any of you remember the Nacellis from 2012-13? Okay, so about half of you. Um, my, for those of you who are newer, I'll just introduce real quickly. My wife, just wave over there. That's my wife, Jenny, and then four daughters, so Kara, Gloria, Emma, and Eden. So, we've been living in Minnesota since 2013, and uh, I'm on a research sabbatical for this semester to write a book on predestination. And we thought, hey, let's spend the worst three months of Minnesota in Greenville. So that's why we're here. And uh, it's a joy. Except when we got here last Saturday, it reminded us a little bit of Minnesota. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, no snow plows. Like, churches are closing for this? But it made sense. <clears throat> Well, how about if I just pray briefly uh, to orient us towards what we're about to do, and then we'll jump right in. Well, Lord, thanks for this opportunity to study your word. Please help our hearts to be humble, to tremble at your words, to not sit over them in judgment, but to, to kneel under them in submission. And as we consider the topic of anger, please help us to have hearts that are soft and repentant and dependent on you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. David Pallison died in 2019. Does that name sound familiar to any of you? David Pallison? Okay, so I, I call him the Yoda of biblical counseling. He's, I had an opportunity once to go to a dinner with him with some other friends, and we just kind of lapped it up for a couple hours. He's, he was a wise man, and uh, one of his books he wrote before he died is called 
good and angry, redeeming anger, irritation, complaining, and bitterness. And the title of chapter two in that book, you see it on the screen there, is Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? Do you have a serious problem with anger? And that, what you see on the screen is the entire chapter. Uh, it's the word yes. So when I first read the book, I'm flipping it. Usually it's like 15, 20 pages a chapter. I'm like, is this a typo? It's not a typo. Uh, he wanted to make a point. It's a very clever point. And the next chapter unpacks his point. Uh, so if I ask you that question, do you have a serious problem with anger? How would you respond? Some of you already answered audibly. I wonder, though, if some of you thought, okay, yeah, we, maybe a little bit, but are you thinking of someone else who has a more serious problem right now? Did that just happen? You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, typically, we have this spectrum in our minds of, okay, yeah, I'm here, but there are these people over here. So when you bring up the topic, uh, it's really easy to not let it land on your heart, what you need, but to think of how bad other people are and how they need it more than you need it. So instead of doing that, let's just recognize that we're all in different places on our journey. Uh, if you imagine like a Pilgrim's Progress journey, we're in different places, different levels of maturity, different characters. Let's just focus on our own hearts right now and think about this question. Do I have a serious problem with anger? And the, the next chapter in the book that unpacks this one word, chapter, uh, unpacks six common reactions to the question. Did I do something? No. Uh, here are the six answers uh, are on a spectrum of do you have a serious problem with anger. First is, yes, I know I've got an anger problem. I feel guilty and discouraged. So maybe that's you in here. You just read the question. You're just like shoulder slump. Yeah, that's me. I need help. That's a good place to be. You recognize your problem. A second, you might say, maybe, but I know other people who've got a lot bigger problem than I do. That's not a good place to be, but at least being honest, if that's where you are, just recognize it. Um, third, just say, no, I don't have a problem. I have good reasons to be angry and bitter. So if that's where you are, I'd say, that's not a good place to be. That's, that's a sinful place to be. Um, keep listening. A fourth, you might say, well... I might get angry sometimes, but I'm not really an angry person. You know, the, the way people talk today when they give apologies is, uh, that's not who I am. You might say, yeah, well, I got angry, but that's not who I am. Five, no way. I've found that anger is the empowering solution to personal problems and social injustice. Embrace your anger. It's a good thing. And then six response is, huh, I hardly ever get angry. Life's usually been pretty good, and I try to keep the problems in perspective. So do you, you think you fit one of those six positions on that spectrum there? Pallison then explains what he says are six common wavelengths within the spectrum of bad anger. See, he's such a, he's a surgeon of the heart. So this, here, here are six types of anger on a spectrum. First is irritability. That's anger on a hair trigger. So do you work with someone or live with someone who is easily 
just set off? Are you cranky, grouchy, testy? A second uh, position on this spectrum is arguing. Arguing is the disagreeable, he said, she said, of interpersonal friction. Uh, Pallison says that anger is the emotion that inhabits interpersonal conflict. It takes two to flight, two to fight. So is, your, is quarreling your first association? So irritability, arguing. Third, he says, is bitterness. Bitterness expresses how anger can last a long, long time. People recycle old hurts and they, they nurse grievances and grudges and they, they just never get over it. So you ever think of bitterness as a type of anger? It's a, it's a cancerous anger. It's like, I'm going to get even with that person by drinking poison. <laughs> it's irrational. Four, violence expresses the sheer destructiveness of angry behavior. So this kind of anger attacks, hurts, destroys. It even kills, and it can find pleasure in inflicting pain. Five is passive anger. This hides behind surface appearances and even beneath conscious awareness. So as long as it's undetectable by the person who's angry, you can't address it. But it has side effects like depression, lethargy, pessimism. That can all stem towards this passive anger you have towards other people. And then sixth is self-righteous anger. This enjoys the empowering sense of grievance. Nursing a grievance, self-righteous anger. You get, out, you, uh, uh, you, you get in touch with honest emotion and you express it feely, freely. It feels good to let it out and it often gets results. Okay, so after Paulson explains that, then he explains at its core, anger is very simple. It expresses, I'm against that. It's an active stance you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. So you, you notice something, you size it up, and you say, that matters, and it's not right. So he says the underlying essence of anger is this negative evaluation, an active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. So he says every time you're angry, there are three things that are in common. First, you identify something that you perceive as wrong. Second, you take a stance of disapproval and you feel displeasure. I don't like that. That's not right. And then third, you're moved to act in some way. You, you feel some way, you, you say something, you do something. But that, that really is the, the essence of, of what every instance of anger has in common. And that raises an important question. What distinguishes righteous anger from unrighteous anger. So righteous anger is a, is a good type of anger that God has. Unrighteous anger is the bad type of anger that we usually have. So Pallison says that the motives at work are the deciding factor. In this slide, you see how you could describe the two. Pallison says that your anger is godlike to the degree that you treasure justice and fairness and are alert to betrayal and falsehood. And your anger is devil-like to the degree you play God and are petty, merciless, whiny, argumentative, willful, and unfair. So when we sinful humans get angry, 
What do you think? You think normally it's righteous or sinful? It's almost always sinful. And even when we're convinced it's righteous, it's probably at least a little bit sinful. Uh, just the way sin affects how we, we operate. It's, we believe in what theologians call total depravity, which doesn't mean that we're as depraved as we can possibly be. It just means that depravity are, is, it, it has radically corrupted every aspect of us, our mind, our will, our emotions. And with that introduction... It's time to examine today's scripture passage, so I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, there's a paragraph, verses 21 to 26, we're going to look at, Matthew 5, 21 to 26, in which Jesus authoritatively addresses sinful anger. So let's start by reading our sermon text, Matthew 5, 21 to 26. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, my job right now as a preacher is to herald, proclaim God's words to you and apply this passage of Scripture. And I plan to do that by highlighting seven truths this passage teaches about Jesus and our sinful anger. Here's truth number one. Jesus teaches about anger with unique authority as the ultimate lawgiver. Now, our passage is part of a sermon, chapters 5, 6, and 7. You know what typically people call this? The Sermon on the Mount. The previous paragraph is absolutely critical here. So let's just back up a paragraph and read that to get our bearings. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then what follows are six issues that illustrate how Jesus fulfills the law. Issue number one is our our passage, anger. And if you look ahead, you'll see there are five more issues. Number two is lust. Number three is divorce. Four is oaths. Five is retaliation. 
and six is loving your neighbor. And for each of these six issues, the structure is very similar. Jesus says something like, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, over and over and over. What he's doing is emphasizing that he has unique authority. People have taught the law to you in these ways, but I am authoritatively explaining to you what the law really means. No one but Jesus can talk this way. And the reason he fulfills the law, verse 17, is the reason he can talk that way. (laughs) He has unique authority as the ultimate lawgiver. He's not just another interpreter of the law. So what he teaches in 521 to 48 contrasts with wrong ways that others interpreted and applied the Old Testament. So he teaches with unique authority as the ultimate lawgiver. Here's number two, truth number two. Jesus teaches that anger is the root of murder. He authoritatively teaches that the command, you shall not murder, extends beyond the letter of the law. It's a heart issue. Don't murder is a heart issue because at the root of murder is anger. You may not be guilty of murdering another human being. I'm guessing that all of you have not done that. And that's a good thing, but that doesn't mean that you have perfectly fulfilled the law, you shall not murder. A.T. Robertson, he's a New Testament Greek scholar decades ago, he said, murder comes from anger. Banish anger and murder disappears. Besides, anger is the same kind of sin as murder. They just differ in degree more than in quality. Here's truth number three. Jesus condemns being angry with your brother or sister. So this is the specific type of anger Jesus condemns here. This isn't anger in general. So it's, we can be angry for lots of reasons that are not relational. So you could be driving down the road and be angry at the stoplights for not being green when, they're, when you're driving. You could be angry at your phone when something about it's not working. I guess technically you could be angry at a person for messing your phone up. But usually it's kind of an impersonal anger. We can be angry at all kinds of impersonal things. You can be angry at the weather. Well, there you're kind of being angry at God. Anyway, you could probably trace it all back to a person somehow. But this is directly personal where you are angry with a person. And I'll show that to you in the passage. Um, two reasons I'm, I'm, I'm arguing that Jesus is addressing relational anger in particular. First is he's getting to the heart of the, pro- the prohibition against murder, and you murder a person. And second, the examples he gives in verses 22 to 25 are relational. So next slide here is a phrase diagram. Let me just explain this to you because you might look at that and your eyes glaze over. Um, I like to do this with Scripture where I, I put to the furthest left the main idea and then I indent what is subordinate to it and modifies it in different ways. It just helps me, and, I'll, and then I can see how things relate. So when I look at this, I see verse 21 is Jesus saying, here's what you've heard. Verse 22, but I say to you. Verses 23 and 24 is an illustration, first one. Verse 25 is a second illustration. And then the last verse gives a reason that uh, verse 25 is so serious. So this helps me. But let me just point out a few things that show how this is relational. Look at verse 22. Everyone who is angry 
What are, the, what are the next three words? Everyone who is angry with his brother. Next line. Whoever insults his brother. Next line. Whoever says, you fool. You say that to a person. Then in verse 23, uh, remember that your brother has something against you. Verse 24, be reconciled to your brother. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser, lest your accuser. So this, the whole thing is talking about anger with another person. It's relational. Hence, Jesus condemns being angry with your brother or sister. That's the particular kind of anger he's addressing. Number four, truth number four. Jesus condemns sinful anger. Not just anger in general, sinful relational anger. And here we need to pause and answer the question, what exactly is anger? It's always helpful to define terms, and I'm going to get help here from a man named Robert Jones. He is a professor at Southern Seminary, and he wrote his Ph.D. dissertation under David Pallison. Here's how he defines anger in his book, Uprooting Anger. Our anger is our whole-personed, active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. So let's just unpack that. He, does, he unpacks it in, in five key ideas. First, our anger is an active response. He's saying it's an action. Anger is an activity. It's something we do. It's not something we have. Second, anger is a whole-personed active response. It comprises the whole person and encompasses our whole package of beliefs, feelings, actions, desires. It's not just a little part of you. It's you doing this. Number three, our anger is a response against something. So your anger doesn't just arrive in a vacuum. It doesn't just appear spontaneously. It reacts against a provocation. So a provocation, of course, must not be viewed as a causation. In other words, he made me angry. He made me angry. No, you were angry and he provoked it, but he didn't make you angry. See the difference when you say he made me? That's not, that's not a correct way to talk. Or you say, I was angry because my car broke down. Uh, you're angry because your heart's sinful and your car breaking down showed us that, right? Uh, so careful how you talk about the word cause, because. Uh, anger's causal core lies in our active hearts, but our active hearts are always responding to people and events in our daily life. Fourth here, our anger in essence involves a negative moral judgment that we make. So it arises from our, our sense of justice, and it functions under that larger dynamic of judgmentalism. And when you're angry, it's, it's, he, he says, uh, this is Robert Jones, it issues mental death penalty verdicts against the guilty. And fifth, our anger involves a judgment against perceived evil. This is critical to, to recognize this. It's something that you perceive. Your perception could be wrong. Our perceptions might be right. They might be wrong. We may assess another person's actions in correct or incorrect ways. Last night at dinner, I just saw this uh, Kara told a story she read in a book 
Kara, correct me if I get this wrong. Uh, Two ladies on an airplane, no, a lady and a man on an airplane sitting by each other, and the lady is writing the book, and she had brought a bag of cookies on the plane, and on the plane ride, she saw the man reach into the bag of cookies and start eating them, and she was horrified. So then she was intentionally eating cookies, you know, territorially, this is my bag of cookies, but she didn't want to confront him for eating his cookies. And at the end of the flight, she realized that her bag of cookies was unopened, and it was his bag of cookies. <laughs> so the whole time she's feeling self-righteous, at this man stealing her cookies, and she was stealing his cookies. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so perceived evil. We could be wrong. In the Bible, uh, Jones observes, nearly all human anger is sinful. In some cases, our perceptions are wrong, he says. We're blind to what is truly sinful. And in other cases, our responses are ungodly. Okay, this is helping us get a surgical precision of what anger is. And everything Jesus says about anger in our passage presupposes that the nature of this anger is sinful. There's a difference between sinful anger and righteous anger. The Bible has several instances of righteous anger, The best example that I can think of is Jesus when he was here on earth as incarnate human uh, prior to the cross, and on several instances, he got angry. You can see a few here on the slide. Matthew 12, Jesus was angry when he cleansed the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. If you saw your pastor flipping tables over somewhere, what would you think of him? (laughs) <laughs> you, might, you might wonder if it was righteous anger, but it's possible to do it. Jesus did it. Uh, here's another one from Mark 3. Jesus was angry when Jewish religious leaders hypocritically judged him for healing on the Sabbath. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. It's possible to look at another human and feel righteous anger. That is possible. Here's another, Matthew 23. Jesus was angry at the hypocritical Pharisees when he addressed them as you blind fools. I mean, the passage we just looked at, we're considering, oh, where does it say it? Verse 22, whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. Jesus said you blind fools. What's happening here? Well, obviously, what Jesus is preaching when he says you're liable to the fire of hell when you say you fool, is that the anger that, that, that produces those words, you fool, is a sinful anger. All right. So Jesus was never sinfully angry. And we know this from several other Scripture passages. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul describes Jesus as him who knew no sin. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus as someone without sin. 1 John It says, in him there is no sin. And think about this. When Jesus was on earth, he was mistreated by sinners. If anyone had a right to be angry, it was Jesus. And look what what Peter says. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When you are reviled, what do you do? 
when children in here, kids, if somebody pushes you, what do you do in return sometimes? Do you push them in exactly the same measure they pushed you? You push them three times as hard. <laughs> we're, we're just wired because of our sinfulness not to be like Jesus in our anger, right? Uh, we are usually sinfully angry when we're angry. Now, uh, Pastor Matt mentioned D.A. Carson when he introduced me. Uh, he wrote a commentary on the gospel according to Matthew that's fantastic. And when he's reflecting on this passage, he has a very insightful observation. Uh, he says that there's a place for burning with anger at sin and injustice. So he's saying, yes, that is true. It's, it is a, it's a, there's a place for us to look out at the world and see all kinds of injustice and for us to feel angry. Example, Pastor Aaron was uh, opening up, he talked about Roe v. Wade. If you really think deeply about the 60-plus million abortions that have occurred legally in our country, that should produce anger. And I think that, that's a righteous anger. Okay? So there's a place for that. But Carson says our problem is that we burn with indignation and anger not at sin and injustice, but at offense to ourselves. So here's what he means by that. It says, uh, in none of the cases in which Jesus became angry was his personal ego wrapped up in the issue. But then he goes on to explain how often what happens is when we get angry, what we're really angry about is about us being affronted, uh, people critiquing us. Here's what he says. Let's admit it. By and large, we are quick to be angry when we are personally affronted and offended and slow to be angry when sin and injustice multiply in other areas. So it says when sin and injustice happen other places, it's not directly re re involving you. He says we're more prone to philosophize. In fact, he says the problem's even more complicated than that. Sometimes we get involved in a legitimate issue and, and, and we discern, perhaps with accuracy, the right and wrong of a matter. So we look out, we see, that's unjust, and that makes me angry. Okay? So here's where this, this gets complicated. He says, in pushing the right side, our egos get so bound up with the issue that in our view, opponents are not only in the wrong, but they're attacking us. So we go from that's wrong to you're attacking me. See the, the slight difference? But it's a huge difference in how, how we perceive what's going on and how we respond and then how our sin messes up even what should have been a righteous anger. So when we react with anger, we may deceive ourselves, he says, into thinking that we're defending the truth and the right when deep down we're, we're more concerned with defending ourselves. Our hearts are so wicked they're desperately sick, and there are so many ways that we can make something right sinful. <laughs> we can even do that with righteous anger. So Jesus condemns sinful anger. Here's truth number five. Jesus teaches that you are responsible for your sinful anger. Everything he says in our passage presupposes that you're at fault for your anger. You are to blame. 
It's your fault. You can't blame other people for your anger. When you're sinfully angry, you're blameworthy. You say, well, people are pushing my buttons. Well, yeah, they're, they're your buttons. <laughs> You've got the buttons. You're at fault for that. You're responsible for your sin- sinful anger. And I'd like to illustrate this with a feature of everyday life that many of you are familiar with. On the left there is a tea bag. In the middle is an empty cup. And on the right is boiling hot water. This is just normal everyday life. Uh, when you want to have a cup of tea, typically you take the tea bag and you place it in the empty cup and then you pour boiling hot water over the tea bag and you get tea. That water transforms into ta- tasty tea. All right? I'm guessing many of you do this regularly. What would you say if, if tea bags could talk, if the tea bag said to you, it's not my fault that the water now tastes like this tea. This would have never happened if you didn't pour hot water over me. And if you were into talking to tea bags, you might say, actually, uh, the water transformed because it connected, came into contact with you. I mean, not, the reason the tea tastes like it does is because of you. It, what was in the bag? The, the water interacted with you. The reason that this is now tea is because of you. Okay, let's talk about people now instead of tea bags. Um, how might this translate into your life? You know, well, I wouldn't have said that if she wouldn't have done that. Okay, that's per- let's say that's true. Let's grant that. But does that mean that you're not responsible for your anger? Because something else, some other situation revealed what was already in your heart? Hopefully you're feeling some conviction right now. We all should be. Because uh, we just recognize we are sinful. And when we are sinfully angry, it's because of what was already here. It's not what was because of out, what was out there. It just, that just revealed what was already here. Your heart is like a tea bag. Now, I'll qualify this. Other people can provoke you to sinful anger and do that in a sinful way. They can sinfully provoke you, and they're responsible for sinfully provoking. Even then, that doesn't remove your responsibility for your sinful anger. We're still responsible for our anger. Here's another illustration, and these are some screenshots from YouTube. So on the left is a cup of dirt, and on the right is a, uh, a cup of water. So dirt and water. What happens if you add water and dirt together? This isn't a trick question. Uh, You get dirty water, okay? What happens to that cup of dirty water if you let it sit for a while? Yeah, so this is sedimentation. Most of the dirt settles to the bottom of the cup because dirt particles are heavier and insoluble. So you look at that cup, And you think, huh, that looks like mostly clean water. So in the previous illustration, your heart's like the tea bag. Here, your heart is like a cup of dirty water. Sometimes you think your heart is pure because you you look at, oh, that's mostly clear water. It reminds me of people who who get married and don't have kids yet. Yeah, this is easy. (laughs) 
mostly clear water. Well, sometimes you think your heart is pure because it appears to be mostly clear water, but what happens when somebody bumps the glass? What happens when something stirs the water? Yeah, it's dirty. Where'd that dirt come from? It was already there. It's already there the whole time. So other people, circumstances can stir up the water and reveal the dirt that's already there. It's already in the cup. So we respond to certain situations with sinful words and sinful attitudes and sinful actions. And when we do that, we just show that our cup of water isn't as clean as we thought. So once you ask yourself, what is it that makes me angry? Uh, what are the triggers? What, what is it that certain people do or say that makes me sinfully angry? Is it particular people, people I live with, people I work with? Is it bad traffic? Is it whatever? It's helpful to ask those kind of diagnostic questions so you can analyze your sinful heart and better fight that sin with God's help instead of giving into it and blaming others for it. We are responsible for our sinful anger, so we've got to fight this sin, whether it's the variety of impatience or irritability, various kinds of anger. When we are sinfully angry or irritated or impatient, we're responsible for that sin. And if we become sinfully angry in a situation, we cannot blame others for our own sin. Jesus teaches you're responsible for your sinful anger. That's truth number five. Here's truth number six. Jesus commands us to urgently prioritize reconciling with others because angry people go to hell. Look at the three statements in 5.22. So Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So those aren't three situations that go from bad to worse, like they're three distinct actions. Uh, Dia Carson explains it here. Jesus is just multiplying examples to drive a lesson home. Remember, he's preaching a sermon. This is a sermon. And, and there, these are three parallel statements that mean basically the same thing. It's three phrases that make the same rhetorical point. The main point is that whoever is sinfully angry with his brother or sister is liable to God's judgment in hell. And the next line, Matthew 5.23, begins with the word, so. That means that what follows is an inference. Because people who are sinfully angry with a brother or sister go to hell... Here is what follows from that. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. He's saying, basically here, in the first illustration, imagine that there's an Israelite offering a sacrifice according to the Mosaic law, the Old Covenant. Uh, a parallel today might be in a New Covenant context like what we're doing now. 
you're meeting with your church to sing together and pray together and hear preaching together and respond and sometimes celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, in a situation like that, before you do that with your fellow brothers and sisters, if you have a relational conflict with one of them, it's much more important that you address that conflict than that you go through the religious motions while being in the state of unresolved conflict, okay? So we might think it's better to prioritize the, the, the routine, the rhythm, and leave un, unresolved conflicts unaddressed. And, and Jesus is saying it's imperative. No, deal with it, deal with it, address it. People, he says, who are character, characteristically angry are liable to the fire of hell. How we deal with relational anger relates to our eternal destiny. It reminds me of 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And note also in verse 23, Jesus says, if you remember that your brother has something against you. He didn't say, if you remember that you have something against your brother. So the issue here is not simply that you're angry at someone else, it's that you're aware that someone else is angry at you. You're responsible to try to make peace. So if you're aware that someone is angry at you, a fellow brother or sister, your responsibility is to initiate and address that. And this lines up with Paul's command in Romans 12. Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Those qualifiers are really important. Uh, he says, uh, two of them actually, if possible, that's the first qualifier. And the second one is, as far as it depends on you. Which means sometimes it's not possible, and sometimes the fault's not with you. But if it is possible, and as far as you're able to contribute, live peaceably with all people. Sometimes that's not possible, even if you diligently try to reconcile. But our goal is to live at peace with everyone. Here's truth number seven and our final one. Jesus is our only hope because we are all guilty of sinful anger. Look at the sentence in 520, right before our passage. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Nobody who heard Jesus say this thought, yes. This is so easy. It'd be like, any of you uh, boys in here play basketball? Anybody? A few of you? Okay. Do, is this one of them? No? Someone pointed. All right. Someone, some, you, you do? You play basketball? Okay, here we go. What's your name? Timmy? Do you know who Steph Curry is? No? Okay. Steph Curry's arguably the best basketball shooter on the planet right now. Uh, he can shoot from like half court or pretty much anywhere on the court and usually make it. He's amazing. Uh, if I said to you, Timmy, unless your basketball shooting skills exceed those of Steph Curry, oh, I won't finish the sentence, but uh, how does it make you feel like you're you have to be better than Steph Curry? How would you feel like? Uh, that's not possible. Uh, I'm just a kid. I'm still learning how this works. He's a professional. I, see, the scribes and the Pharisees were the professionals. And the, the people Jesus was talking to, they'd be like, 
there is no way my righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. This would have made them feel like this is an impossible task. I can't do this. And to some degree, we are all guilty of sinful anger. And when we read this passage, we, we should be feeling like, how can, I, how can I even do what Jesus commands here? So there, there are a few ways that we can respond wrongly at this point. We know that we're not supposed to be sinfully angry. That's the bar. So we can, we can, we can mess up here. We can respond wrongly. Uh, here, here's one way that comes to mind. We can say, you know what? Everyone's, everyone's sinfully angry in some ways, so whatever. And just not even try to fight the sin. Or worse, you could say, well, Jesus paid for all my sins, and Jesus is perfectly righteous, and I have his righteousness, so I don't need to worry about my, my sin. That, that is not how Christians think. Uh, on the other hand, we could go into this tailspin of, oh, man, I'm so bad, I'm, and just introspection, and, and think about how bad you are apart from Christ. You see how both, so one, yeah, uh, I'm not even going to fight the sin. The other one is, I'm so bad, I'm so bad, and it's all about me. What's, what is the way to, to think to, well, the way forward here? We want to be fighting our sin, but we don't want to be fighting it in our own strength, for our own glory. We're all about mortifying sin, read Colossians 3. On the other hand, we recognize before Jesus glorifies us, we're going to fail. So what's, what's the balance here? Uh, I don't want you to, to walk out of this room thinking, like, all right, we just got our pep talk for the week. No more sinful anger. And you, like, turn out on the Woodruff Road. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Uh, on the other hand, I want you to fight sin, but to fight it the right way as a person who is in Christ, connected to Jesus. Uh, you cannot earn God's approval on your own. You've got to be trusting Jesus as your only hope, your only Savior. He's the only one who can save you from the hell of fire. You deserve that because of your sinful anger. He's the only one who can transform you and empower you to kill this sin of anger. So that's, that's the mindset that I pray that you have. And I'd like to close by praying, and I'm going to pray in the first person so that you can quietly pray exactly what I'm praying before the Lord. So pray these words with me in your hearts, and then we'll, we'll transition to whatever's next here. Father, I cannot do this. I cannot perfectly obey what you've commanded about my sinful anger. My heart is sinful, and I, I sin in my anger so often. It's, debilita- it's, it's debilitating to think about. But thank you, thank you that Jesus fulfills the law. Thank you that Jesus perfectly obeyed your moral will in my place. Please forgive me for, for breaking your law. Forgive me for my sinful anger. Forgive me for hurting people I love. Thank you that Jesus lived and died and rose again for sinners like me and that you will save me if I turn from my sins and trust you. So now, would you please 
give me grace to live in a way that pleases you. You're my master, and I, I want to live in a way that pleases you, so please help me fight sinful anger instead of giving into it and excusing it. Help me love what you love. Help me hate what you hate. Help me keep in step with the Spirit. Please increase the fruit of the Spirit in me, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.